Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Today's reading is from Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the Lord in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I've just about gathered after that story about some saviors. It's so, um, so exciting. So um, it's nice to be here this morning um, for those I haven't spoken to before, my name's Amy. I'm a student here. I'm a third year. We meet at um, St. Melitus College here on a Tuesday. And then the rest of the week, I'm placed here at Trinity, which I love. I'm married to Adam, and we have four children. We have two sons and two daughters through birth and adoption. And um, it is happy chaos in my house. <laughs> um, I can't quite say that we've been at Trin- Trinity since the very beginning, but almost... Our story is that we were uh, living in St. Albans in Hertfordshire, where um, I'm from, and we were commuting into London, we were working hard, and um, we had a great friend, Craig, Scottish Craig, some of you may remember, it was the first operations um, pastor here, and he came, and he texted us and said, I've just moved to Nottingham, it's really fun, you should come and visit, and so he moved in the August, and so for October half term, we came and we spent a night here in Nottingham, we'd never been before, and um, spent some time with some of the other, Johnny and Amy and some of the other team. And as we were driving home, uh, we had three little ones at the time. My husband Adam turned to me, and um, in quite a surprising way, actually, because normally the second we're off the drive, he's asleep. And uh, he was awake, and uh, he turned to me, and he said, I think we've got to move there. I was like, oh, okay. So we took a minute. And I said, okay, if one of us gets a job, we'll go. And so the competition was on. We were on competition because whoever didn't get a job had three little people at home. And so we were like, right, let's go. And I won. So I got the job. And uh, Adam actually had an absolute ball um, staying at home with the children. And so by Christmas, we were here. 
And to be honest, we had no idea what we were here for. We just felt like we'd heard the Lord and we came. We got schools, sorted just uh, a job, somewhere to rent. Amy and Johnny really helped us with somewhere to rent. And we were here. And I would just encourage you this morning, before I even really get going, that if you feel the nudge of God to do something, even if you have no idea what's behind that door, oh my goodness, listen, (laughs) because he had so much for us here in this city. He had family, he had community, he had calling, he had a son, he had so much for us here. And so, um, yeah, he's so good. And we're still kind of reeling that we're here, to be honest. So this week, we are looking at the next chunk of Revelation. For those who've been traveling along with us, we've been in the book of Revelation, going almost line by line, starting off with the seven letters to the seven churches. This week is the last letter. I don't know if you feel a sigh of relief. It's the last one. It's the letter to Laodicea. So this place is the last of our tour of ancient cities. It was a really grand and wealthy place, full of industry and wealth. It was situated in a rich valley supplied by the Lycus River, and it was known as one of three sister cities, which we'll come back to later on. So there was Laodicea, there was Aeropolis, which was six miles away, and Colossae, ten miles up the river. Interestingly, Paul asks in his letter in the Colossians to be read in Laodicea showing their closeness in location, but also in character. So we've been learning over these weeks that these seven letters are used by Jesus to represent the complete church, to speak to the church, all of us. And Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message version of the Bible, he suggests that the aim of these letters is spiritual direction. And that's worth keeping in your mind as we go to raise up and sustain disciples of Jesus. And this is still the case today. So this letter to the Laodiceans is, I would suggest, perhaps, the best known of these letters. Some of the verses that Heather read for us are some of the best known in Revelation or even in the New Testament. You may have heard the uh, the verse, I stand at the door and knock, and not really known where it came from. It's been represented in art and culture. It's one of those iconic lines of Jesus from the Bible. But I've been praying hard this week um, for the Lord to say something new and specific to us from these verses. To this church in Nottingham in 2023. To a hungry city church in the here and now. And I believe that these verses speak to us this morning. And so we're going to have a go at offering some thoughts to you. So as with several of these letters, it can be split into two parts. You have the issue and the solution. You have the symptoms and the remedy. So the key symptom being discussed in this city is its temperature. It's lukewarm. Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I became a Christian at 16. But I can guess that saying that someone is a lukewarm Christian is a pretty well-known Christian put-down. It's one of those things, isn't it? You're like, oh, no, a lukewarm Christian. And in my house, we use the term vanilla. The film was vanilla. The party was a bit vanilla. My cooking is always vanilla. (laughs) Vanilla is all right, nothing to report, forgettable. Kind of plodding along, 
But I think beyond that, there's nothing wrong with vanilla. It might be your favorite. But I actually think with lukewarm, it goes a bit beyond that. Is that this used to be rum and raisin. Or this used to be cookie dough, but now it's vanilla. It's lost its flavor. Now, I've read these verses in the past and assumed that this is a scale with kind of colds on the one side where you maybe have um, someone who hasn't heard the gospel, maybe an atheist, maybe someone who's heard it and kind of decided to move away. And then on the other end of the scale, you've got hot, passionate Christians, you know, church on fire. And the Laodiceans are kind of plodding their way down the middle. But I don't think when I kept looking at it that that seems to work here because Jesus says he'd prefer them to be either cold or hot. So I think something else must be going on here. And Daryl Johnson's commentary, which we've been using, Discipleship on the Edge, has been an amazing resource as we've studied Revelation. And he explains this by looking at these three sister cities. So you've got Aeropolis which was six miles away and was known for these hot, healing waters. So I think, Christoph, we have a picture. This is actually Aeropolis. So um, these are their hot kind of natural springs. And then in Colossae, it was well known for its cool, refreshing water. So this next picture with the boat, I don't actually have Colossae because I couldn't find a picture, but it is very nearby, and uh, it is in Turkey. It's one of the cool springs, and I think it's really similar. So you've got these hot natural springs, you've got these cool, refreshing bays, and in Laodicea, you have neither. And instead, you have pipes. This. So this is Laodicea, and they had to pump their water in through pipes. So they didn't have these kind of natural resources, and they had to bring it in. So the water got warm in the process of pumping it in. And not only that, but the hot mineral springs of Veropolis traveled along the valley over the cliffs of Laodicea and became warm, but not only warm, it became, the minerals in it became sickening. So people, often tourists or visitors, would gather sort of gather up this water, taste it, realize it was kind of warm and kind of gross, and spit it out. So this description was a daily occurrence for these residents of the city. They were used to seeing people spit out their water. So one of the texts that I found tricky in amongst this passage is Jesus saying that he's going to spit these people out, literally throw them up. It doesn't really ring true in my mind, the Jesus that I know the Jesus that loves mercy and grace and peace. But actually, looking at this um, description of water, we can see more of what's going on under the surface. I don't know if you've ever had a word or a picture from God where it feels like the person praying for you has read your post, where it's specific to your heart and your life and what's going on with you. But that's what Jesus is doing here. The Laodiceans know their water, and they know their hearts. They'll understand the reference, and I don't think they'd assume that Jesus is angry or violent and about to vomit them out forever, which has definitely been preached (laughs) on these verses. Instead, my hunch is that they would hear lukewarm, and that it would make total sense to them. He's saying, you've become your water. You're neither crisp or cold, refreshing but you're also not hot and healing. You're that warm water that you see tourists spit out on the rocks. And I think it would just make sense. I think it would kind of hit them. 
G. Campbell Morgan says these quite brutal words. Lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. I don't know. I've sort of sat with this. I don't know what I think about it, if I'm honest. But I think what he's getting at is that the amen from verse 14, the one true God, the foundation of the world, and as I say to my little ones as I put them to bed, the God who made the stars and the giraffes and drew all of your freckles, he is not worth everything. I think that's what this is trying to say. You can give him a little if you like. But this is the bit of the text that I've struggled with because I do think lukewarmness sickens Jesus. But I don't want to stand here and preach a sermon that makes you feel like you should do more, be more, try harder, show up. I just don't think that's what he's trying to say here. So firstly, we need to understand why the church in Laodicea is lukewarm. Why is this their temperature? What's been going on for them to have become their water? And I would suggest it's their self-sufficiency. Laodicea has three main things going for it, and we read about that in the text. There's plenty of money with thriving banks. There's a huge clothing manufacturing industry. They had this black wool that was really well-known and popular, and a successful medical school. So I can imagine that life was busy and full and high-pressured. Now, as I've said, I'm a city girl through and through. Moving to Nottingham kind of felt a bit like moving to the sticks for us. <laughs> um, I joked to a friend a few weeks ago that before we lived in Nottingham, I'm not sure that Adam and I had ever been for a walk. I just didn't really know what it was. It made me feel a bit funny. I don't really know what it is to walk for no reason, like not on the way to dinner or going for coffee or an exhibition, and especially walking where there's no roads or pavements. Adam and I dated for six years before we were married, and my favourite kind of day was meeting him and going for breakfast, to brunch, to coffee, to drinks, to dinner. And I hope that when I look back on it, we got our steps in. <laughs> but going from food establishment to food establishment. I actually sent this picture of my dog, River, um, to an old London friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. And I was in Sherwood Pines, which I love to do with Adam on a Friday morning, with River, flasks of coffee. And she genuinely texted me back with the words, you've changed. <laughs> I don't think she meant it in a good way. I really, really, really love living in a city. And I'm always going to find a busy coffee shop more restful than a wide open space, I think. But I also see that it is really hard to follow Jesus in a city. Daryl Johnson says this, one of the hardest places to be a disciple of Jesus is in a city, especially a thriving city. It's so easy, I think, for us in Nottingham here today to imagine how these people may have become lukewarm. Just look around you, take a moment to kind of take a breath, look within you. Are you busy? Do you work hard? Are there not enough hours in the day? Do you wake up tired, crash into bed tired? Are there people in your life with more than you, more money, more commitments, more going on, more opportunity? Are you hoping that things will calm down a bit, get better, change soon? I think we're all being offered the city's water to drink. 
When my children are all asking me for something different at once, I need a snack, I need help with this, I need you to sign this letter, do you know how to spell this word, which I often tell them to ask Alexa. Um, <laughs> my stock kind of mum response, which I'm sure they find so annoying, is before I do anything, I say, I need a spa weekend. And I'm yet to have one, so. <laughs> um, but don't we all, don't we all just need a minute? Hot, healing water, cool, refreshing water. I don't think Jesus is sickened by lukewarm Christians because he wants us to try harder. I think it sickens him because he knows it isn't good enough for us. He knows the water we're drinking isn't satisfying. It's making us sick, and that sickens him. I also don't think, and this is just my suggestion, you might be somewhere completely different this morning, but I don't think that we become self-sufficient because we're feeling successful and confident and secure on our own. I think quite the reverse. I think we become lukewarm Christians who try and live self-sufficient lives because we're hiding. I know that's what happens for me. Brené Brown, who you may have seen, um, speaks so beautifully on vulnerability, and lots of people call her Saint Brené, which I uh, am very happy to join in on. She says this, Perfectionism is the 20-ton shield. We think it protects us from getting hurt but it protects us from being seen. The banks of Laodicea, the thriving industry, the successful hospitals are all ways to cling to their own resources, to control, to hide, to keep moving, to keep it ticking, not stop long enough to think about how they're actually doing. And in my life, I call this the white noise. I don't know if you have that, but I know when I'm getting to that place where I keep busy, I keep moving, there's always some noise, there's always a job, don't stop to think. Because I think the sneaking suspicion in my own life is if I stop and sit down, the walls might crash in. So it's that tick, 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 keep going. And I think that's what this city looked like. So to these three strengths of the city, you've got the banks, the industry, and the medical schools. Jesus replies specifically to these three things. He says, in fact, you are poor, naked, and blind. He responds to those three strengths of the cities. He's telling them that they are actually weak, vulnerable people underneath what their city is known for. He offers them then gold refined in the fire, white robes to wear, and salve to put on their eyes. He responds to each need with something from him. He wants to feed their hearts with his resources. Jesus sees that this city is trying to go it alone. He also sees who they are and what they need. He knows that they're in fact poor, naked and blind. And when I read that with those verses initially, he says, wretched and pitiful. And I was like, oh no, Lord, you know, those words are hard to hear, aren't they? But I think actually what he's saying is, I see that you're afraid. I see that you're trying too hard. That life is full of hard work, of comparison, of all those things. 
But actually, when you've read these verses that suggest that Jesus is saying that these Christians are lukewarm and going to spit them out, he doesn't then turn away. He doesn't say, no, you've had your shot. I'm spitting this water out and I'm moving on somewhere else. He rushes into them. His response is, buy from me. Jesus is inviting this church, and I would say our church and every church, to come to him, buy from him. The riches of the city won't do. He's offering riches and freedom and healing. And for each of these self-sufficiencies, he has something better, something that actually satisfies. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, I don't know if you've read it. If you haven't, it's a really beautiful book. He looks at the heart of Jesus and tries to kind of discover through the scriptures what Jesus says about his own heart. He used this little fictional story to explain, and I really think it speaks to what these verses are about. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe in a faraway land, afflicted with a contagious disease. He has medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and needs no pay. But as he sets up camp and tries to seek and to provide this medical care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a brave few step forward to receive the care that they are being freely provided. And what does the doctor feel? Joy. He feels joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing, because it's the whole reason that he came. He goes on to say this, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and complexity and sinfulness, you are going with the deepest wishes of Jesus, not against them. Jesus Christ is comforted when you draw from the riches of his atoning work because his body is getting healed. Jesus may be sickened by lukewarm Christians in Laodicea and here in Nottingham, but not because he wants to see us warm up, try harder, or chill out. He's not saying those things to us. Instead, he's saying, come by from me. Come to me. I have what you need. So how do we do this? And the text really clearly tells us three things that we can do. We can repent, we can open the door, and my favorite, we can eat with Jesus. So repent. Dane Ortland again says this, it's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity, that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people, 
or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people, but to raise dead people. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bring the dead to life. Lukewarm was not the water that we were meant to drink. I think we've seen here at Trinity that God is in a moment of showing his church how sick we are. And it can feel really hard how gross the water that we're just sort of soldiering on saying, this is okay, this is enough. It's not the water that we were meant to drink. And Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, says this, the church will only get right by each person getting right. We're in a moment where we have to get right with God, not because he's mad at us, but because he longs for us, for all of us. We've seen confession return as a powerful moment of freedom for people here in the church, literally taking weights off people that they have carried around for months and years and receiving afresh the freedom of Jesus, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. Confession, if it's new to you, can sound like a really heavy Christian practice. But in fact, we've seen it playing out here at Trinity as a simple act of grace. If you have a close friend or would like to come and see one of the team here to have a really honest conversation for us to sit with you and pray with you and encourage you, then we would really encourage you to just ask the Lord. Say, Lord, where am I with you? Is there something that I need to share with someone else? Is there freedom that you have for me? He's been so faithful to so many already, and I know that he has more for us in this. So we repent, and then we open the door. This powerful God that we've been hearing about in Revelation, the beautiful God with a shining face, with burning bronze feet and a sharp sword in his mouth, he isn't going to crash in on your life. If you've never experienced God, or you've forgotten, or you've got busy, or sad, or disappointed, he is not going to overpower you. He's going to wait. He's standing at the door of your life, interceding for you, praying for you, longing for you. And then we have to choose him. He is standing there, ready, and he knows what you need. We have to give up our self-sufficiency, repent, and turn towards the door. And then we eat with Jesus. When we open the door to Jesus, wherever we are in our life, however too far gone we may feel, However busy or tired or angry we may be, he promises to come in and eat with us. I've shared this before, but one of the most powerful moments of prayer in my life, which kicked off probably two and a half years of really honest healing and hard work and beautiful prayer with the Lord, was a was, yes, two and a half years ago, was a prayer meeting in the prayer room just in, here in the corner of the building. And Amy was leading us as a team. And she encouraged us to put our hands, close our eyes, 
asked Jesus to come into the room and stand in front of us and ask him what he wanted to say. At this point in my life, I was really struggling, and I wasn't in the mood for this at all. I was in the depths of crippling anxiety. I had panic attacks happening at the time. But to the world, I looked smiley and perky, and I was going, and I wasn't going to stop, and I was busy, busy, busy. I know that I was tightly wound and afraid, but I was also desperate for nobody to know. But I did as I was told. I closed my eyes. I put out my hands. I imagined Jesus walk into the room, stand in front of me, and in my mind's eye, I heard him say to me, sit down and tell me everything. Everything, 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 everything. And so I took him up on the invitation, and it was slow, and it was hard, and I'm still going. But I really do think he meant everything. The things I've never said out loud, the things I wouldn't tell my family, the things I thought that even Jesus couldn't find in there somewhere. That's what he's saying to the Laodiceans and to us. Put down the warm water, give up. Give up the hard work and the comparison and open the door to me. And I will come in and I will bring you mercy and peace and love. There might be plates in the sink, washing on the radiator, family arguments brewing, post unanswered. But he wants to clear that table and sit down with you and eat with you to look you square in the face and to let you know that you are deeply, deeply cared for. And when you've tasted his living water, when you've seen the difference from the water that you've chosen to put down, I don't think you'll ever want to go back. I know now that I am in a really, really honest place with God, and it has been really hard to get here, and I know there are still layers that the Lord is yet to show me that I need to give to him, but I don't want to go back to where I was before, even if it looked way neater and tidier than my life now. We're being invited as a church to repent and believe again. He's asking us to put down our self-sufficiencies, whatever that might be for you, and to cling to his riches, not because he's mad with us, but because he longs for us. And beyond eating with him, However glorious that is, it's going to get better. The end of this letter is the hint of the throne room to come. In Revelation 4, the throne room is coming. His glory is coming. The banqueting table is good, but even beyond that, he's inviting us deeper still into his throne room. So let's pray together this morning.